Okay. If you would, open your Bible to Genesis 1. 20, well, we're going to, oh my, let's see here. We're going to focus on uh, Genesis 2, 1 through 4, but we're going to start reading at 127. And you're invited to use your Bible, your phone, your worship guide. Just listen however you want to do it. Uh, let's, let's read this together. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. So God created mankind in His image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I will give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, every tree that has fruit with seed in it, and they will be yours for food. And all the beasts of the earth, and all the birds in the sky, and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. All right, so the big question, the two big questions for today are, what exactly does it mean that God rested? What does that mean? And then the second question is, why does it matter? Uh, Genesis, the Genesis 1 creation story that we have been spending weeks in, uh, you know, where God, uh, creates the heavens and the earth, and then we focus in on this story of Him shaping the land, uh, by forming it for three days and then filling it for three days. And those two pairs of three days all culminate to this big seventh day. It's like the most important day as as we read it in its structure. Everything's leading to this. And on that day, God does something sort of strange for someone who theologically is not supposed to get tired. He rests. And then all throughout Scripture, starting with... We read about it with the people that Moses was leading out of Egypt. You know, Moses wrote this under God's inspiration for the people in between Egypt and Canaan. And he's writing this beautiful story about this land that God is fashioning under the wings of his Holy Spirit presence. And they're heading to it. And starting with them and all throughout Scripture, we get a really big deal. Uh, told to us about this seventh-day God-resting business. 
Um, what, what does it mean? That's what we're trying to figure out. I remember once, uh, years and years ago, I was um, on a church staff, and we had a staff meeting, and we were uh, we had a discussion question, and the discussion question was uh, something along the lines of, "What does it mean to Sabbath?" <laughs> and we sat around for quite some time and went around and talked about what it means to us, what we think it means to Sabbath. And one thing I noticed as we went around the circle is that most people had different answers. Uh, for some, it's that means take a day off. For some, it's go on a vacation. For some, they have like a like a liturgy they do at home and light a candle. Some people talked about what happened on their trip to Israel. Uh, some people talked about their church growing up. All kinds of answers and ideas. And that was the purpose of the conversation. Uh, of what Sabbath means. And I sat there thinking, man, this is something that the Bible talks about. Literally from like, let's see, this is page three in my Bible. From page three all the way through this idea of Sabbath. And here we all are. What is Sabbath? And working, people working out of church. And all our answers are different. I thought, huh, what's that about? Everything that we know and everything that we learn, everything that we practice, everything that we might disagree on or get confused about or have an opinion about or practice about with Sabbath, all of it comes down to this, comes back to this seventh day God rested business. And if we can wrap our minds around what does it mean that God rested on the seventh day, I believe that... uh, what will happen with us is what I think Moses hoped for, for the people that he was writing this for, who are just learning to practice Sabbath. And it's that uh, everything else that Scripture says about Sabbath and Sabbath rest, which is a big deal in Scripture, a big deal in our faith, would all line up. And we'd be, we might not understand or agree on all of its implications, but we would at least see its center. And so I think if we can grasp Genesis 2, Sabbath, everything else we'll see. So that's kind of the, it's an ambitious goal, but that's the goal for this time. So we're going to boil that down to what does it mean that God rested and why does it matter? So let's start with what does it mean that God rested? Uh, well, uh, when do we rest, folks? When do you rest? Uh, I tend to rest Usually sometime in between 11 p.m. and, you know, sometime in between 10 p.m. and 8 a.m. <laughs> Other than that, sometimes I take naps. But usually all of it comes down to being tired. Uh, when do you rest? Uh, we usually rest as people when we get tired. But God doesn't get tired, right? He's an omnipotent, all-powerful, infinite being. He's never overwhelmed. He never loses it, He's, uh, he never changes, uh, he's not bound in linear time like we are, he's not weak, he doesn't get hungry, uh, he doesn't get frustrated. What does it mean that God rested? Well, we've been asking over and over again in this series the question, what does the Bible say? Uh, sort of paying tribute to Gary Brashears asking that question to Christians for generations. What does the Bible say? Well, I think that the answer 
to what it doesn't mean that God rested is pretty clear in the text, and it's so easy to pass over it. It says, look at verse, chapter 2, verse 2. It says, by the seventh day, God had finished the work that he had been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. Uh, what does it mean that God rested? Was he tired? No. Well, he rested because he finished his work. That's what it says. The seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So, on the seventh day, he rested. Uh, the word there for rested in the Hebrew is one that might be familiar to you. It's sabbat, which is where we get the word Sabbath. God finished the work that he'd been doing, so he Sabbathed. Now, that word sabbat in Hebrew, that's, turns out it's not so much a I'm tired, so I'll rest kind of resting. It's very much a, exactly what it says, I'm finished, so I rest. So when we read about God resting on the seventh day, this is not God gets tired, so he takes a nap. This is God finishes, so he stops. Think about maybe a project that you have worked on recently. Uh, what happened when you were done? You probably stopped doing it. And I think about mowing the lawn. You know, you mowing the lawn, even though we have to do it repetitively, at least for a few months, uh, you go out there, and but once you, you go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, and then you stop. And you put the lawnmower away. Or you finish cooking dinner, and then you sit down at the table. Or you five o'clock finally hits, or whatever time you get off of work, and you just you put your stuff down, and you pick up your keys, and you're out of there. Uh, not everybody's job, but we would all like it to be that way, right? He finished, so he rested. He stopped from all of his work. Now, to ancient readers, you know, Moses wrote this for the people in between Egypt and Canaan. Uh, In the Hebrew mind, this idea, the ancient Hebrew mind, this idea of sabbat, of stopping because you're finished, uh, this carried... Imagery. Just like a second ago, I drew images from our culture to help uh, all of us picture what sabbat means, stopping mowing the lawn, stopping cooking and sitting down to eat, clocking out for the day. In the Hebrew mind, this idea of sabbat would have conjured up images. And two big images specifically that really... Uh, should shape the way that we understand this because they very much are shaping the narrative here. When Moses wrote this, the Holy Spirit inspired it. It wasn't, it wasn't like Moses closed his eyes and picked up the pen and it kind of moved on. It wasn't a Ouija board. It was God used Moses' literary brain, his personality. Now, even in the original, wherever the original text was, that he wrote his own handwriting. We, this is Moses' book. It's not any less God's book, but it bears his personality. And so Moses being educated in ancient Egypt, Moses being a Hebrew, Moses being on the road with the Hebrews in the desert, the cultural images of his day are infused in this text. So there's two of them that's going to really help us understand God resting. So God's resting, 
What does that mean? What is it all about? Well, it's not resting because he's tired. It's resting because he's done. And what images does that bring in the Hebrew ancient Near East mind? Well, two of them. First is an image of enthronement. A kingdom image. Now, remember, Moses was raised in the king of Egypt's house. Maybe he got it from there. It's this image of enthronement. Sabbat happens uh, when a king secures his kingdom, sets his kingdom in order, and then sits on his throne. There's an enthronement image here. Sabbat happens when a king secures his kingdom and then takes his throne. A great example of this that we see in Scripture is the story. Remember the story of when King David wanted to build a house for God? Remember that? God said, no, not you. You've fought too many wars. It's going to be your son. Remember that story? Well, listen to that story comes from 2 Samuel 7. Listen to the way it starts. Let me read you 2 Samuel 7, 1 and 2. This is the beginning of the story of David wanting to build a house for God. Listen to this. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all of his enemies all around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a palace of cedar when the ark of God remains in a tent. Then he goes on to tell Nathan, I think I want to build a temple. But did you catch the way it started? After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from his enemies, then he said to Nathan, David's story, he was anointed king when he was a young man or maybe even a boy. Then, But he didn't take his throne right away. He, ha- he served King Saul. He got chased around by King Saul. Uh, there was like a whole like running through the desert thing. Uh, finally, King Saul died and he was made king in Judah and served there for uh, even a few years. And then after that, the people in the north that we would call Israel, they, they finally caught up to it. And then he was also made king over Israel in Hebron. He served in Hebron seven years and then he conquered Jerusalem. And then he took his palace, and then when God had given him rest from all of his enemies that were all around him, and he was settled in his house, then he wanted to do this thing with building God's palace. That's the idea of Sabbat. Resting because you're done. But that in the Hebrew mind, the ancient Near East mind, carries this royal imagery. The kingdom is established. The king sits down. The king Sabbaths, if you will. So when we read, by the seventh day God had finished the work that he had been doing, and on the seventh day he sabbat, he rested from all his work. Kingdom imagery should come to our mind. Enthronement imagery. Genesis 1 is not just a story about God creating the heavens and the earth and then forming and filling a land. Genesis 1 is a story about how God created a universe and established a land over which he would rule as king. It's a kingdom story. And when he finished his work, he sat on his throne. Uh, Meredith Klein, who was a brilliant Reformed theologian, said, said this about this place in scripture. God created 
the heaven and the earth to be his cosmic palace, and accordingly he rested uh, he rested occupying his palace in a royal session. The dawning of the Sabbath witnesses a new enthronement of Elohim. Isn't that cool? Did you know that the world that God created, the heavens and the earth, did you know he created it to be a castle, a palace? And did you know that God sitting on the throne is not some throne just like in imaginary or in other dimension or just in heaven? It's it's literally a throne somehow in metaphysics. Nobody knows. It's literally a throne over this heaven and this earth. And that's where he's enthroned. So... What does it mean that God rested? It means that he stopped. What's all that about? Well, it's about kingdom. It's about God being king over this world and this world being his palace. It's about something else. There's a second ancient Near East image that would have hit those early readers in the desert that they would have caught. It's not kingdom imagery. It's temple imagery. There's an indwelling thing happening here. What does it mean that God rested? It means uh, that God took up residence in his temple. In the ancient Near East, from Egypt all the way to Babylon, uh, including what we know of the people of God, the people of Israel, Hebrew people, across the ancient Near East, temples were built as places for the gods to rest. And even though we have false gods all around, listen to what the one true God does when his people create the tabernacle according to his plans. Remember, they're in the, they're in the desert. Probably around the time they're receiving this, these stories and these writings from Moses, Exodus 40 tells the story of them building the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, that mobile temple where they carried the presence of God with them. It says this, when they had finished building the tabernacle, it says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So Moses leads the people and they build this tent of meeting, this tabernacle, this mobile temple to carry the presence of God with them. And when they get done, Moses inspects it and they have this big dedication ceremony and then a cloud comes down over the tabernacle, fills it, and rests upon it. Now... Remember how all this creation story started with the Holy Spirit, the wind or the breath of God, sound kind of like a cloud, hovering over the land like a mother bird? Now we have this tabernacle and God, God's Spirit, coming down in the form of this glory cloud resting on his temple. So here in Genesis 2, at the end of the Genesis 1 creation story, where it says that God uh, on the seventh day finished the work he'd been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all of his work. What it's telling us is that this land uh, is a temple land. It's a place where God's presence rests. So Genesis 1 is a creation story where God not only creates everything that there is 
informs and fills this particular land, which is supposed to be his palace and is supposed to be his temple. It's a story that finishes with completion. God coming as king to sit on his throne in his house of divine presence that he built. And this is the way that God made the world. And after he comes and stops and rests on his throne, in his temple, filling the creation with his royal and divine presence, the story then after that ends with, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. That's pretty radical. Pretty awesome. So why does this matter? Is this just something cool that we learn, we talk about, um, for you to imagine or whatever? What's the, does this have practical implications? Well, it does. Um, and again, what does the Bible say? We look at the text. There's no, it's not an accident. It's not a coincidence that just before Genesis 2, 1 through 4, where God finishes and he rests, we find Genesis 1, 27 and 28. We read it a second ago. On day 6, so God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then it talks about God giving the people food. So here's what we have here. We have in this story a God who creates, who forms, who fills, and then rests. Temple, throne room. And then he makes mankind, male and female, all people, and his image to look like him and to be like him. And then he tells them, hey, you guys, go out, form, and fill. And then what would come next? God forms, fills, rests. God makes people to look like him and tells them, you form, you fill, and then you help me out. Rest. Thank you. That's why this matters. Here in this text, we see that God not only creates people to live in his world and do his business, he creates people to live in his world, do the things that he does, forming and filling, ruling, increasing, uh, with the implication with the very direct message that when the people are finished with their work, when the people are finished with their uh, work imitating what God has done, then they would join him in his rest. So God forms and he fills and then he sits down in his temple and in his throne room and then he tells the people who bear his image, now you go out, uh, fill the earth, increase in number, rule over all the animals and everything. The idea is that people would go out, obey God, do like the things that God has charged them to do, the things that look like him. They look like him. Their work is supposed to look like him. And then at the end, they will sit down with him in his temple and in his throne room. 
So, did you know that God's plan for the world from the beginning was for the world to be a temple, palace, where God ruled alongside human beings? And where God was worshipped in a way where human beings had full access to him. Now in ancient temples and in ancient throne rooms, regular folks didn't just walk in. If you walked in without permission, you got killed. In either of those places. But the way that God designed the world was as a throne room where the throne is shared. In a temple where full access is given. Did you know that God, we, we talk a lot about how God wants to be king in your life. He wants to be king in your heart. Uh, but what we don't talk about enough is that God uh, wants you to be a vassal king or queen in his life. And that God wants you to live in his heart. Do you see it? This is baffling. That the infinite God who never changes would seek out some sort of communion, community, mutualism with people in a physical world. Folks, we, we think about grace as something that starts after the fall. It's not. Grace is something that God was pouring out from the very beginning. Even before sin entered the human story, God was offering people salvation by grace through faith worked out in obedience. Oh, people who look like me, do what I'm doing, follow my commands, and then come join me in my Sabbath rest. Even with people who never sinned, that's so gracious, we can't even imagine it. It's just a reminder that even sin entering the world cannot derail God's plan for grace, faith, salvation, and communion with his people. That means when we live into the gospel, when we believe the gospel, and we hold to God on the only rope that we have to hold on to is his grace, that means that we are doing something that actually is more in line with the way that we were designed than what we do when we try to live on our own. You know, it's interesting, again, that this was written by Moses uh, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit for the people in between Egypt and Canaan. Because in the book of Hebrews, we get the author of Hebrews uses the people's journey from Egypt to Canaan as a metaphor to draw out and paint a picture of this thing of God being in his Sabbath rest, his throne room, his temple, and inviting us into it. And the author of Hebrews tells the story of how the people, they were heading towards the land. We read it earlier. They were going to enter into God's Sabbath land. His temple, throne room, land, over which the Holy Spirit hovered. But not all of them made it, because their hearts were hard. Only some of them made it into the land. And the author of Hebrews, as we read earlier, he draws out that just like, uh, just like Adam and Eve didn't make it into the Sabbath, 
a ton of the people following Moses, going to the land, they didn't make it into the Sabbath. But then the author of Hebrews writes this strange verse that we read a second ago at the end of that passage. He says, he says, the Sabbath rest still stands for the people of God. He says, it's still open. It's, it's ready for you. You can still go. You can still enter the throne room. You can still enter the palace. It's open. God is still Sabbathing. And you're still invited. And as Bible readers, when we've, if, if we, if we've read, starting in Genesis 1, and we get the whole story about God making the temple palace land world, uh, God by grace, creating people in his image, male and female together, mutually walking together, uh, toward God, obeying his commands, doing the things that he said to do, so we all together can join God in this beautiful, harmonious life filled with God. You've read that, and then after that we read, we'll get to it in Genesis 3, and then after that we read story after story after story of failure, 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 sin, death, sin, death, not making it to the land, not making it to the land, rejecting the Sabbath, having hard hearts, being a stiff-necked people, uh, being exiled, the, the whole shebang. And then the author of Hebrews says, it's still open. We should hear that, and, and as Bible readers and the people of God, we should go, Really? It's still open? We could still go? God doesn't just want us to live good, religious, moral lives so he keeps his good reputation and everything works out in the world according to the way that my preacher growing up said it should. It's not just that. The author of Hebrews, no. Sabbath rest remains. It's open. You're still invited. Really? We're invited to sit In God's throne room, we're invited to stand in the inner court of his temple. We're invited to share communion and community and mutuality with the infinite living God. Really? And the author of Hebrews goes, it's still open. (laughs) And we should say, please tell me how to get there. Right? Folks, I know that in life, you know, we, we, we're, you know, we're following God, we're following Jesus, we're Christians, we're doing this thing, and that's really awesome, and that means so much to us. Um, but I know that myself, and I'm willing to bet you too, each of us inside still feel this. Uh, maybe it's very quiet, maybe some days it's so screaming loud you can't do anything else. This little voice that says, when will the work be done? Because I'm exhausted. When will the work be done? When will the work of uh, of this church be done? When will the work of working for justice in the world? When will the work of working for good in our relationships? When will the work of working on my marriage, of raising my kids, when will the work be done? When am I going to finally feel the thing I say I believe, life filled with God? When am I going to finally feel the authority God says he's given me as one of his agents? When, when, when? Or like the psalmist says, how long? How do we get there? Well, the author of Hebrews who says it's still open, he starts out his letter 
with these words. He says that Jesus, the Son, is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of his being, image. He sustains all things by his powerful word. That's kind of like a forming and filling thing. And he says, after he provided purifications for sins, he sat down. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus, the image of God, after he did his work of forming and filling the thing that we're supposed to do, right? As image bearers. And after he made purification for sins, the thing that keeps us from the Sabbath land, he sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's the place human beings belong. So, when we ask, how long? When will it be over? When will we be done? How do I get there? The author of Hebrews is the one that says that the Sabbath rest land is still open. He urges us to look to Jesus, the first human being to make it in, who's saving you a seat. He's finished the work of human beings. This creation mandate that we read in Genesis to go uh, to, like God gives, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish, do all that stuff. Did you know that that's something that we have failed to do, but that Jesus has accomplished in fullness? And he's sitting in our spot. This is why Jesus in his ministry says things like this. In my Father's house are many rooms, and I'm going there to prepare a place for you. This is why Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. This is why Jesus says, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Folks, the gospel is that Jesus, the only human being who ever made it into God's Sabbath land, by doing the thing God commanded all of us to do, He has opened the way through his death, resurrection, for those who would follow him to follow him right into the temple throne room where God is and to take a seat. And when we follow Jesus, we are following him into the ultimate goal of everything, which is sitting down at the right hand of God. Sabbath rest. Let's pray.